Hey, everybody, good morning. morning. Greetings to you. Uh, This is my first time uh, getting to be here in the Swedish Hall uh, teaching with people here. Uh, So that's exciting for me. Um, uh, If we haven't had the chance of meeting before, my name's Matt. Um, I'm a minister here on the staff, uh, largely working with our community groups team. And uh, every once in a while, I'll get to teach. And it's such a a pleasure. Um, So... I have to tell you all, I've, I've been like laboring for this sermon. Like, um, I hear childbirth is hard, but this was harder. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll probably get in trouble for saying something like that. But uh, uh, this, this Future Church series, I'm so excited about what we're up to in our church in this. To be talking about spiritual practices for a rule of life that can sustain us and uh, that are countercultural in ways that are important for us as followers of Jesus. Um, we have talked about inward practices, uh, things like silence and solitude. Uh, that's kind of like how we, how we interact with God in our inner world. Uh, and we've also been talking about these more outward practices, like what are the things that we uh, are, are doing in our world, in and about our world for the sake of the renewal of all things, to be on the mission God has called us to, Last week, Dave uh, preached on hospitality as, as a way that we do that in our rule of life. And today, we're actually going to a second, more outward practice, uh, which is vocation. Um, now, uh, this, this is going to be uh, you know, a mouthful of a sermon title. Uh, that's what we've been doing in this series. Uh, so it's called A Community of Contribution in a Culture of Careerism Through the Practice of Vocation. So we're setting up like not being invested in the culture of careerism, this, this thing that's in our world, but instead being a contribution through living according to our vocation. And um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 26 through 28 as foundational core scripture for this. So please listen, uh, pr- listen prayerfully as I read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we recognize that you're here with us right now. In in the Swedish hall, in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, wherever we are, you are because you promised to never leave us or forsake us, Jesus. So God, in a, in a message about vocation and how we, how we live according to the calling you've given to us, uh, I just want to say up front, God, we don't want to do any of that apart from you ever. Um, not in the power of self, not by our own strength, not by playing the, by the rules of our world, but aligned with your created order from the very beginning. So Holy Spirit, I just offer you my whole capacity right now as a teacher in service to our church. 
Um, may my brothers and sisters be uplifted and encouraged and called into a good way of life in the style of your kingdom through this sermon. Um, I'm just, I'm an open vessel for you, God. So we bless your holy name, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. What would you give your life for? I know that's the kind of question that sucks the oxygen out of a place. What would you give your life for? And we think of uh, parents, you know, jumping in front of buses to push their kids out of the way or secret service agents to, who are like taking bullets for presidents. In Christian tradition, we have a like, big, long history of Christian martyrs dying for the faith. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. It's actually something that I think we, we can gather a lot of um, perspective from. What would we give our lives for is, is it can mean what we die for. And that's, that's one angle on what we would give our lives for. But I want to talk about another angle, and it's more every day. It's happening all the time. What would we give our lives for is what we live for. It's happening no matter what, always automatically at a rate of 24 hours per day, we are giving our lives for something. Right now, right now, like in this room, in your living room, you are giving your life for something. You're giving your life for the opportunity to worship God on a Sunday morning, to learn from his word. And you're giving your life for something. And like I said, this is automatic. We're always living for something. There's no way to sidestep it. But I think this is actually where things get super interesting. Uh, what would you give your life for means, you know, what would you live for? And it's not just some ideal hypothetical thing like if this situation happened where I was in dire circumstances to protect my family or whatever, I would give my life for that. No, it's, this is like happening all the time. And let me, let me just like, I want to give you a little space to think about that. What would we give our lives for? What are you already giving your life for? You see, what we give our lives for is revealed in what we do. When um, someone would ask you at a cocktail party, uh, cocktail parties, remember cocktail parties? <laughs> ah, you know, the, the Zoom cocktail party is not as good as the normal cocktail party. But you meet somebody and their question for you is, what do you do? And we automatically fill in the rest of that sentence with what do you do for a living, right? Uh, Notice the language of, of it there. Like, what do you do for a living? Which automatically translates in our mind, like, what's your job? What do you do for work? And then we respond however is true for us. You know, I'm a minister. I'm an Instacart shopper. I'm a teacher. I'm a, you know, computer developer. I'm a, I'm a startup founder. I'm a PE instructor, whatever it might be. And, um, and this is also the stuff that we put on our about me sections and dating profiles and social medias and, and all of these things. And then that's how we introduce ourselves. So that's also how we tend to automatically judge everybody else. Um, you'll, you probably notice even as I was like giving this list of different things people could be doing for work, you are subconsciously ranking them by social status. And maybe even on um, social media or dating app or, or whatever, you see somebody's job and you automatically overlook them and 
say that they're not good enough, or maybe in the other, other side of it, you automatically assume they must be stuck up because they have that job. Um, and if, if that's you, I, I just want you to pay special attention to this sermon today, okay? <laughs> uh, because uh, I think it's actually kind of all of us, but please, let's all pay special attention to this sermon. <laughs> so the reason why we ask people what they do and they answer with their jobs is because um, social status, work, like we have come to naturally believe that there's this connection bet- between who we are and what we do, what our worth is and what we do. And what we do is work. The average American spends 35 hours per week on work. And I know in the Bay Area, you hear, hear 35 hours and you're just like, what? <laughs> like, like, I wish I could work 35 hours per week. You know, Elon Musk, uh, Tesla, Bitcoin, the planet Mars, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, he, he's kind of like the Silicon Valley Ubermensch figure, this like golden boy of what work should be like. And he touts an 80 to 120 hour work week. For the, for the highest achievers, this is the gold standard. And so not only this, but now like in a pandemic, the separation between work and life is basically non-existent. I don't, like I work in my bed, I work on my couch, I work at my dining room table. Um, You know, like my whole house, my whole apartment is workspace. The office, the home, great convergence of it, right? Um, I work and I life, they're not separate apps anymore, you know? So this is what we've got in the uh, pandemic era. And if you are lived, if you have moved to SF, if you've stayed in SF during the pandemic, it's because you're here for your career. Um, we're here like chasing the promise of our careers. So whether we're, you know, these urban Gen Xers or millennials or Gen Zers, there is, I believe, for all of us, a temptation to careerism. The author and minister David Zoll provides a really great sketch of careerism in his book, Seculosity. He says, work has always served as the great American barometer of worth and identity. Our occupation is the number one socially approved means of justifying our existence. And not just the type of occupation, but performance there. When we talk about success or failure, it's assumed that we're talking about work, which means that a job is never just a job, but an identity. It is where we locate our enoughness and as as such, the stream from which our strictest pieties flow. Does that hit home for anybody else? It's really easy for us to pull identity from our work. And, um, you know, it's built into our names. Uh, Tyler Madsen, our music minister, jokes about how Tyler means one who does tile work. Um, <laughs> uh, our youth minister, Melissa Weinish, her last name, her family name, Weinish, means winemaker, right? And, uh, and it's built into our names. And I imagine, like, all the computer programmers in our church, they're going to name their first child Cody. <laughs> wow, that joke landed better than I thought. I thought, that, that makes me so happy. I thought I was going to get a big cringe dad joke response to that. Um, So jokes aside, uh, 
work can take on this religious zeal, this place where we get our identity, um, even justifying our existence through our performance at work. And when we overemphasize work, our relationships with work can just become careerism. Um, so I want to define careerism before I move forward here. So careerism, I would say, is an idolatrous overemphasis on work, such that we look to a job as a core place for spiritual and emotional fulfillment. When career becomes our source of everything worth having, identity, purpose, meaning, money, worth, we find ourselves putting too much weight on a corner of our lives that can't sustain it. And if you don't think you're a careerist in this room, I, I just want to put a test out there. Um, how would you feel about losing your job? Um, you know, I think for most of us, that's a deeply disorienting thing. Um, I know this is something that's happened to me. It's, it's very common, actually, for um, losing a job to feel like, but what's my value, what's my worth anymore? A few years ago, I was working for a church down south and I didn't even lose my job, but I was overlooked for a promotion. And even just that, like being overlooked for a promotion, it got me into this headspace of like, who am I, what am I even worth if, I, if, if I'm not validated by my workplace as competent? It can hit like these performance existential levels for us, our work. And, you know, this might look different for you, but we can easily put too much weight on our careers. And I think we are highly, highly tempted to do this in our current culture of careerism in particular in lots and lots of ways. The first way I want to look at is hustle culture. You've heard of it. Rise and grind. Okay. This is the time where we have to figure out how to monetize everything that we do. Our Instagram must be monetizable. Right? Um, you have to... Not just have your nine to five, but um, an ad slogan the other day was, hey, this is, this is where you go for your five to nine, right? Your nights and weekend work. So that you, until your, hustle cult, your side hustle becomes your main thing and your hobbies are sellable on Etsy. Hustle culture, I think, is one of these pictures of the fundamental brokenness of careerism. We don't know how to rest. We don't know how to say enough's enough uh, because it's validating our existence in some way. And when we're hustling nonstop, it's easy to get into burnout. Um, we're overworking. We're thinking just a little bit more time, a little bit more attention until work is completely absorbing our, absorbing our lives. And when we get into burnout, we actually say things like we're drowning in work right now, right? Notice the language there. It's not saying well, this, this feels like being alive to me. It feels like dying. <laughs> I am drowning in my work. A recent um, Harvard Business Study review, uh, Harvard Business Review study, uh, it spelled out that there's some crazy things happening in burnout. In fact, there's an epidemic of burnout in the midst of our COVID-19 pandemic. You've probably experienced this, but the stats say that 89% of the people that they looked at said their work life has been getting worse. 85% said their well-being had declined. 56% said their job demands had increased. 
62% of the people who are struggling to manage their workload had experienced burnout often or extremely often in the previous three months. So burnout at work, on top of all the loss of the pandemic, and you know, on the note of loss, what happens when you lose your job? What happens when it all crashes down? The pandemic saw a staggering 22 million jobs lost in the United States. That's 14% of the American workforce. For every 10 people in the United States, one or two of them lost their job. These jobs were lost, and these jobs in the careerist way of going about work were the places of meaning, identity, purpose. So hustle culture, burnout, job loss, these are just a selection of things that are the problem with a careerist way of going about our work. Uh, but I could also look at other things, performanceism. You know, from the cradle we'll raise to like be successful in our families, in our school systems, and then it just carries right on into work. Uh, we could talk about greed for power and money, exploitation of labor across the lines of, you know, gender, race, and so on. And there's also this other side of careerism where there's a group of people who don't, don't succeed in the careerist system. And they go through life burdened by this system, feeling like failures, wondering if they're even worth anything. These are so, uh, I mean, we could go into so many things about it, but this is part of the death-dealing cult of careerism. And at this point, I might have given you like hypertension just talking about all these things. <laughs> Even having to think about work on a Sunday morning is probably tr triggering. Um, you know, it is for me and I work on Sundays, so... <laughs> But if this stuff doesn't give us pause and doesn't make us want to find a different way to go about work, something other than the careerist way, I don't know what, what can, honestly. But take a breath. There is stuff in our hearts below the surface, stuff that's going on, and this is true of anything that we're tempted to make an idol. There's stuff that that idol is giving to us that's answering a deep need that we have, a deep spiritual, emotional need. And for some of us, it's, it's like coming from a like highly successful family where there was pressure to succeed all the time. Maybe controlling parents in that. For some of us, it's like growing up poor and just a commitment to like, I will never let that happen for my kids. Maybe there's even like this desire to find a, a mate, a romantic partner, and your, your feeling is like, the only way I can get the social status enough to be attractive is through my career. There's things, deep desires below the surface that drive this stuff. And I just wanna, like, I wanna honor the state of our hearts in this stuff. There's, there's a place for that. It's not in this careerist system. There's a place for it in how God has made it to be. My brothers and sisters, I want to tell you all about that framework for how we can go about our work through the groundwork of our vocation. And that happens when we realize that there's a created order to things. 
Um, we're not made to rise and grind. We're not made for burnout. We're not made for a job loss to cause an existential crisis. I want to tell you about who you are, what you are called to be in the biblical picture of reality, in the created order of things. And this, again, that's the groundwork for vocation. So vocation, what does that mean? Um, I would say that vocation is the calling of God for your unique identity and mission. Who God has called you to be and what he has called you to do. Vocation, um, sometimes it, it shows up through discerning. Um, I, think, I feel like vocation and discernment go hand in hand. Like observing what's happening in our relationship with God. Knowing our life stories. Knowing the gifts that we have. Knowing the, the areas of influence that we can speak into. Uh, triangulating all of that. And realizing, okay, that's where calling is for me. This is what is meant by vocation. And what I hope is that, you know, what, I, what I intend to show you is that vocation needs to be the groundwork for how we approach work in our lives as followers of Jesus versus a careerist current that we, we naturally want to swim in, okay? Um, career doesn't dictate life. Vocation dictates life, okay? And it's not about looking for something out there that you can prove yourself with or that you think is going to give you fulfillment, some job that's going to be the answer for you. It's actually about having a relationship with, with our caller, with God, the one who has called us. And then being a contribution out of that. So uh, we're going to explore that for the rest of this sermon. But I want to highlight up front that Vocation is a very unique thing. Um, no two people have the same exact calling. Uh, it's like a finger, fingerprint or retina scan, like uh, to unlock a passage, unlock a door. Um, there is something that you uniquely, in the framework of who God, how God has made things to be, your unique contribution to this world that is meant to unlock something. And if you don't contribute that piece it might stay locked. So obviously, like the, the next question is going to be like, well, what is my vocation? Like, please tell me what my vocation is, Matt, please. Um, again, this takes discernment. I'm going to try my best to give you something of like a one-size-fits-all biblical framework for this, but it's going to take some custom fitting for you individually. Uh, I'll tell more about opportunities for that later in the sermon. But in the creation narrative, we get this big picture framework for how God created things. And we see God early on in Genesis. He's, he is working. He is creating. He is making. Which is to say, like, work isn't a bad thing, right? Like, in lots of ways, if we're going to be like God, we are meant to be working. Um, and the Genesis account gives us this glimpse of our created purpose in our work. So from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which I read earlier, I believe that we see the created order and three ways that God has called you. He's called you to be yourself with him, to steward the gifts and abilities that he has given to you, to have dominion over what he has entrusted to you, this is the created order we see. And we're going to take these one by one. So God has called you to be yourself with him. 
It's the first one. You know, what does it really mean to be yourself? You know, what are, where does identity come from? Especially if we're going to resist the careerist temptation of thinking that we are what we do. I believe the scripture provides an answer. Um, identity comes from being made in the image of God. And uh, if, if you've been, uh, you know, a follower of Jesus for a while, this is like one of those things that you've maybe heard a thousand times. Um, and don't tune me out on this, okay? Because we can gloss over this thing that is so fundamental and crucial to who we are, being made in the image of God. And I want to tell you a little bit more about that. So the Hebrew word there, um, made in the image of God, made in God's likeness, it actually connotes an intimate familiarity, an intimate similarity. Um, it's like the, you know, the, the same kind of similarity I have with my dad. Like you look at us and you're just like, you're obviously related, right? Um, or maybe you have like that best friend and people always comment like, you two are like the same person, <laughs> right? Think of this kind of intimate similarity, all right? This is what we share with God as human beings created in his image. So there is a fundamental intimacy built into the image of God and how we are created. Um, and we see this on display in these opening chapters from the book of Genesis as Adam and Eve are just there in the garden, naked and unashamed, completely vulnerable with God and with one another. And if we read the symbolism of this, then I think we see that... Um, like that state of perfection in the garden where everything is right, everything is made how it was meant to be, created in a perfect order. Um, there was no shame. People showed up exactly as who, who they were meant to be. There's a, bil a built-in authenticity to the created order of things. And these two, Adam and Eve, were created in the image of God to be like him. And that means now for us, for you, for me, to be our true selves with God cannot be separated from who God is. To be yourself is to be intimately identified with God. And this matters for you. This matters for the, the groundwork for our vocation. Our identity is not found in our work. It is intimately interwoven with who God is. This is also true about everyone you've ever met. There is a fundamental dignity to being made in the image of God. And so while there's this careerist temptation to judge people according to what sort of job that they have, the created order that God gives us in Genesis gives us this glowing, dignifying alternative where people are not um, their job what they're capable of producing. They are instead made in the image of God and therefore given an intrinsic value and dignity. Um, this is true on, on social media and your dating app too, by the way. Um, Genesis gives us a different picture of reality. Um, so this is important. God has called you to be yourself with him. A second calling in this is that God has called you to steward the gifts and abilities that he has given to you. To steward the gifts and abilities that he has given to you. In verse 28, we see it. 
Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Here we see what God entrusted to humanity. You know, it's just a few small things. (laughs) Make lots and lots of fruit. (laughs) Enough babies to fill the planet. Tend to land, sea, sky, every creature there within. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a small thing. It's basically everything. Steward everything. Um, And there has been set up this created order where we are meant to steward our gifts. And just like a decent manager knows how to manage themselves, right? Um, I want us to talk about how we need to manage, we need to steward the gifts and unique abilities that we possess. Self-stewardship, you might think of it. Self-management. God gave us the gift of creation, but he also gave you, me, unique gifts and abilities, and we're meant to steward those to make much. Um, Some people refer to these as our uh, time, talent, and treasures. It's like the classic preacher way to put it. They all start with a T, that's why, you know. Um, And these are the basic building blocks to help the kingdom of God come on earth, the way we get to contribute to it. So there's so much to say about stewardship that there's like one really, really crucial piece that I don't want us to overlook which is that if we are stewards, then we are not the owners. If we are stewarding gifts and abilities, like this isn't our thing. Uh, it's not like we're staying at an Air- Airbnb though, right? Like we're, we're like, we just booked the place and uh, when we check out, we do the bare minimum <laughs> of the checkout stuff. Like, hey, this place doesn't require us to do dishes. All right, let's hit the road five minutes faster. <laughs> like, That's not the way that we are called to steward creation and our gifts. Instead, we're meant to improve upon it, to take these gifts and abilities and make more, create abundance, create flourishing out of what we've been given. I draw heavily from uh, the parable of the talents, Matthew 28, that Jesus gave. And um, due to time, I can't like read the whole thing to you, but I encourage you to read through it. But there's a crucial point in that parable that I think we need to learn, which is that God is the master who has called us to steward what belongs to him. Not treat it like it's our own, not hide it away, but to make more. And these unique gifts and abilities are ultimately things that he's entrusted to us to steward. So God calls you to be yourself with him. He calls you to steward your gifts and abilities, which we'll talk more about in a little bit. And he also calls you to have dominion over what he has entrusted to you. Uh, In Genesis, we see responsibilities for all of humanity being fruitful, increasing in number, filling the earth, subduing it, so on. And then there's an interesting verb in the mix there where it says to rule over creation. Uh, Sometimes that Hebrew word is also translated to have dominion over. Uh, Have dominion over the sea, the sky, the land and the creatures all within. And I know uh, due to the American sensibility, the word dominion might throw us off. Uh, It might put up some alarms. We Americans don't like dominion and domination. We're suspicious of authority. Um, You know, it's it's like we live constantly on edge edge that the queen of England is gonna try to like reclaim us or something. (laughs) 
But when I'm talking about dominion, the way it's mentioned here in the Genesis narrative, it's a good use of power and authority. It's using and power, power and authority to produce good. Um, and we as Christians, we have a responsibility. Um, you know, sometimes because people can misuse their dominion over things, we do have a responsibility as Christians to stand up for just like, hey, that is not good use of power and authority. We get to say that, they that, say that if we want to. Um, I think we're called to. We can speak to the misuse of dominion. But again, in this picture of Genesis, we see that there's a good picture of dominion. Adam, Adam and Eve are given dominion over creation to name the animals. Um, they're given a piece of the garden. And it's fertile and it's verdant, and it's gorgeous, and it's beautiful, and they are called to keep it beautiful, to maintain it, Uh, not just to take it as it was, but to like even make more of it. To have dominion over a space, I think means producing beauty, excellence, glory, peace, all good things on it. This is the proper biblical use of our dominion. But we know that the story in Genesis goes on and uh, eventually uh, things go south. Um, It's called the fall, right? Um, Adam and Eve stray from their appropriate place of dominion. Like the one place God tells them not to go, they go. They disobey, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and there are consequences. And I think the Jewish teaching of Kavana sheds light on the after effects of the fall. In this concept, through the fall, uh, the manifest glory, like in the concept of Kavana, the manifest glory is diffused and broken. Um, God isn't just within creation freely moving through it anymore. There's, there's something broken, ruptured in the way things were meant to be. A distance that didn't exist before. Um, a fragmentation of God's glory that was meant to fill and charge creation. Um, it's like the light bulb went out or something right? And we see this like spelled out in the Genesis narrative, thorns and thistles on the ground, uh, the labor of childbirth becoming painful, Adam and Eve knowing their nakedness and being ashamed. And then one of these animals that they tended to previously and loved and cared for is actually killed in order to cover their shame. When the world was meant to be charged with the goodness of God, the glory of God, the light bulbs went out. So this Jewish concept of kavana means having a sincere and heartfelt, holy intention as we go about our prayer and work. It's actually our way of having a holy intention, uh, you know, before we open our computer in the morning and, and just saying, God, I give this work to you. And when we do that, we actually um, participate in what Paul sets up. All right, in uh, Colossians 3.17, where he says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We go about life thanking God. We go about our work honoring him. And in the sense of Kavana, we get to reweave the glory of creation that was always intended, the glory of God back into the fabric of the world. And this is what it looks like for us appropriately to have dominion in a fallen world. So no, I'm, I know I'm kind of talking vaguely about this and in metaphors and, and all that, um, but I, I thought I'd ground it in reality by 
honoring some people in my life who I see doing this. Um, They bring their gifts to bear on their areas of dominion in life. And in doing so, they reweave glory back into the created order. Um, None of them know that I'm going to do this, so they'll probably get embarrassed and... um, but honor, honor, I honor them, you know? So um, I think of my friend, Debbie. She's, <laughs> I know, some of us know her. She's, she's an advocate for ethical investing in finance. And she in, she, in doing that, she weaves glory back into finance. My brother-in-law, Chris, is an incredible stay-at-home dad. And he's like landscaping at home. He wants to make their, their place in Bakersfield the ultimate like kids hang spot so that he can reweave glory back into his neighborhood. My friend Eliana, she works in tech at a startup. She knows she could make more money if she went to a new job, but she's got this unshakable sense that God has, has her there with her company to honor her, her workers her coworkers, and so she reweaves glory back into the workplace. My friend Scott, he like spends himself as a mediator and um, a peacemaker, trying to bring conflicting people back into a state of peace, reweaving glory back into legal proceedings. My friend Barrick and Veronica, uh, they're the most hospitable people that I know. When I'm down in the LA area, I stay with them. And they reweave glory back into their house guests. Me, like, thank you. Reweaving glory back into their home through hospitality. Or my friend Seth, uh, the most, one of the most lovable people in our church. An incredibly talented chef. Started up a fine dining. He's starting up a fine dining restaurant. Shout out to Osito. He's creating jobs for fellow restaurant workers. He volunteers his time at local nonprofits to just cook and teach cooking. He is reweaving glory back into San Francisco's restaurant industry. And I get so jazzed thinking about this because everybody's playing out their vocation in a completely different way. No two of these people are doing it the same way. And it's because everybody has a unique space of dominion and a unique set of gifts and abilities. And we get to see where those converge in their vocation and they contribute wholeheartedly. They spend themselves on these pursuits. And church, this is what I want for all of us. For all of us to live out our vocations and in doing so bring renewal to our city. And I know there are plenty of people in our church who are like hearing this and they're just like, sure, Matt, whatever. I've been down that road before. I'm, I don't have a vocation. Um, I just want to honor, it's, it's not abnormal to feel lost in this thing, okay? Um, but honestly, you might be overthinking it a little bit. Um, when I was, uh, uh, a few years ago, right after finishing seminary, I was doing missions work in Spain. I've told a little bit of this story before, but I had the privilege of um, being a pilgrim on the Camino de Santiago and just walking hundreds of miles across Spain. And the way it worked is like you wake up in the morning and you um, pack your pack and have a coffee and then you take off with a group of people uh, and you just start hiking along this ancient path. Uh, everybody's going at their own pace. So there's parts where I would just be like, uh, you know, nobody was around me hiking solo. And, uh, and it would get to this point where... Um, because I, I hiked the whole thing without a map. 
because there were way markers along the way, little arrows on the ground or painted on rocks or so on. Um, and I would get to this point though where it had been a long time since I saw the last way marker, uh, saw the last arrow. And I there's nobody around me. I'd start to get confused or anxious or like, am I lost? Am I okay? You know, like all this stuff. And, uh, and I'd be like frantically searching like, where's the next arrow? God, will you please show me the next arrow? Make sure that I'm on the right path. Show me the next arrow, please, God. And in that time of confusion and like feeling lost, it was always so important for me to remember the last arrow. I was on the path that I was on for a reason. Um, and if you find yourself doubting your vocation, feeling lost about it, I want you to remember your last arrow. Remember the thing that put you on the path that you're on right now. Um, it was like, I, I signed a lease to live here, right? Like, I felt like that was the right choice, right? Remember that last arrow. I took this job. Remember that last arrow. I started this relationship and I, I feel I am committed to seeing it through. I made vows to see it through. Remember that last arrow, right? <laughs> Whatever it is for you, right? And God might show up and redirect you from time to time. There will be future arrows way marking your way, all right? But if you're feeling anxious about your vocation, I want you to remember your last arrow right now. Um, so bring your gifts to bear. Like if, if you're in a confused place with your vocation, to simplify it, bring your gifts to bear on the places of dominion in your life. And stay true to that last arrow. So again, you and I are called in a few ways to be yourself with God, to steward the gifts and abilities that he's given us, to have dominion over uh, the places he's entrusted. And I think these add up to a very simple phrase that I want to put on your radar, to be a contribution. I hope it can almost serve as, as like a mantra or as like that kavana, that holy intention, to be a contribution. Um, and I think that where our area of dominion and our gifts and abilities converge, that's where we get to be a contribution. There are times in our lives where we don't have dominion over things that we wish we did, even though we're particularly gifted in that. Like, remember the last time where, uh, you know, you felt like I could do a better job managing my team at work than my boss does, right? It's that feeling. Uh, we don't have dominion, even though we might be really, really gifted. Um, those are places of frustration. Um, and if we let them, they become places of cynicism as well. Uh, I want to caution us in that place uh, to make requests for dominion, right? From a heart of service, from a heart of service. Hey, I would like to help out with this. Can I please help out with this? Um, can I, please, boss, can I please help out with this, right? <laughs> I think I could do a good job, right? To make those sort of requests, um, to not let frustration or cynicism take over, but instead look to be a servant um, in these places to contribute. There might also be these places where we have a lot of dominion uh, and we don't actually have the gifts to match them, right? Uh, we call that places of recklessness, okay? Uh, and oftentimes... It's a matter of time uh, until humiliation, okay? Uh, uh, 
where we don't actually have the gifts to pull this off. Like if I were trying to run the, if I were to like try to run the church right now, I don't have the gifts or abilities to pull it off. Our church would not survive, right? Like I, it's appropriate that I'm not in that place of dominion, right? It's okay for us to have limits, all right? And where those limits, where our gifts and abilities, where our areas of, of dominion converge, that's where we can be a contribution. That's the sweet spot of our vocation. So look for that in your work. Be in that sweet spot of contribution where gifts and abilities converge with areas of dominion. All right, we're on the home stretch. We've been joking as a sermon team about how every one of these uh, sermons during the Future Church series is like five sermons. Um, so thank you for hanging in there. Um, we're going to get one step more practical before we wrap up because. In the Future Church series, we've been talking about our rule of life, a set of spiritual practices. Um, and today is about the practice of vocation. And is vocation a gigantic, all-encompassing life thing? Yes, it is. Um, it plays out in work, it plays out in home, it plays out in your social life. Uh, vocation plays out everywhere. And uh, we wanna give you a few practices that you could have as part of the rhythm of your life in order to stay a contribution in your vocation. So as a baseline practice, um, I wanna highlight that, that concept of kavana, right? Um, setting setting in a holy ideal, a, whole, a holy intention for your work. Uh, it can look like before you start your job in the day, as you leave your house in the morning or as you open your computer in the morning, um, just saying, thank you God for the work that you have ahead of me today. Help me to be a contribution. It could be as simple as that. Return to it throughout the day as it comes to mind, but just set the holy intention of being a contribution in your vocation. And uh, we've also been talking about reach practices. So like, if you feel like that's part of your, uh, you know, your spiritual vocabulary, so to, so to speak, um, to set a holy intention with your work, then we invite you um, into a practice That'll take some explaining, but it's uh, the Quaker practice of a clearness uh, committee, okay? Uh, this is like a group of people who are co-discerners with you in your work, in your practice, a clearness committee. Um, we're going to go over what this looks like in the vocation discipleship course that is gonna be coming up in the late spring, okay? Where it's like you can build your own personal board of trustees, the people that you tap into for discerning what's next or how to best use your vocation, uh, your, your gifts and abilities in your vocation, right? So along with other discipleship courses that are you know, coming down the pipeline that we're gonna be announcing after Easter, you can come be part of that vocation course. Uh, and this is the spot where if you're wondering, okay, this is a broad teaching kind of general, this is gonna be one of the spaces where you can tailor fit this sort of content to your life, all right? Um, so, wow, gigantic sermon, gigantic topic. Um, covered lots of ground. Quick recap. Let's resist together this temptation to be careerists to put our worth or value, to try to treat our careers as the place where we get emotional and spiritual goods, um, to treat that as the core place where that happens. And instead, let's be free in the created order of things, to be image bearers, to be people who steward our gifts and abilities, 
to have dominion over the places of authority in our lives in a good way to create good there. And with that, um, will you please pray with me? So Lord Jesus, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm even just thinking about, with gratitude, just getting to be a contribution right now um, to our church. Thank you. I, I'm honored to get to do that. I pray, Lord, um, that Holy Spirit in, uh, yeah, in the second set of worship and as people think about this sermon, um, that you would be like highlighting what this means for everybody. Um, you would do the, the tailoring of this to people's lives, how to follow their vocation and be a contribution in our world. Lord, I bless and honor the unique gifts and abilities you've given our church. Help us, God, to, to spend them well, to give them to our neighbors, to our communities, to our church, to our workplaces. And God, um, yeah, I pray that through, yeah, through the, you know, hundreds, thousands of people um, that listen to our, our, our church sermons, God, that you would be calling people to be people who reweave glory into creation through the work that we get to do. Give us worshipful hearts as we do our work to glorify you, to honor you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.